The old pilot's plain tales. Pursuit across the channel. People may think that Britain's recent attempts to separate from the rest of Europe is a new thing, but in reality, it was a struggle that started around 10,000 years ago, when, during the Devensian glaciation period, two glacial lakes breached and flooded the Weald Artois anticline. The first flood lasted several months, releasing around 1 million cubic meters of water per second. This and subsequent mega-floods scoured out the channel and destroyed the ridge that joined Britain to continental Europe. Since then, Britain has, more or less, been an island. The English Channel that forms the aquatic barrier between southern England and France has been an important feature in British history and prevented several interlopers from getting a foothold on our green and pleasant lands. Some of the most noteworthy being the defeat of the Spanish Armada by Sir Francis Drake in 1588, the occasion when Admiral Lord Nelson took control of the Channel during the Battle of Trafalgar, securing Britain against an invasion by the Little Corporal during the Napoleonic Wars, and Operation Sea Lion, the aborted Nazi invasion by another corporal during the Second World War. Of course, it wasn't entirely successful as a barricade, or we wouldn't have a considerable smattering of Latin, thanks to Julius Caesar, some German from the Angles and Saxons, and a measure of Norman French, courtesy of William the Conqueror. But without them, we wouldn't have the rich language that gives us a modicum of sense, ale to drink, or a wicket to use in the great game of cricket. At only 18.2 nautical miles, that's 21 statute miles, 38,000 yards, 35,000 metres, or 114,000 feet at its narrowest between Dover and Calais, known as the Straits of Dover, or the Pas de Calais, depending on which side you stand. Just remember who was victorious at Waterloo, my Gallic friends. On a clear day, it's quite possible to see the opposite coastline from either side, and the territorial waters of both Britain and France overlap by a few miles in the middle. Such has been the historic significance of this small stretch of water, it's hardly surprising that crossing it, in various ways, has been a test of endeavour for centuries. Crossing it by air, however, has been a relatively recent trick, first achieved by, oh the shame of it, an American and a Frenchman. Whilst we're probably aware that the Montgolfier brothers were the first humans to ascend in a hot air balloon, their achievement was followed by a vast wave of balloonomania which swept France. Clothing fashions changed to produce balloon-like puffed sleeves and round skirts in their honour, and hair was coiffed a la Montgolfier. It also heralded a generation of balloonists, including Jean-Pierre Blanchard, keen to experiment in this new science of aeronautics. 
When getting airborne from Paris in his first hydrogen-lifted balloon, the flight nearly ended in disaster when a spectator, a contemporary of Napoleon, Dupont de Chamont, attacked the mooring ropes with his sword after being refused a place on board. Perhaps the world's first display of air rage. Blanchard was going to manoeuvre his balloon with oars, but despite his attempts to row the aerostat around, it just went where the wind took it. Having moved to England to demonstrate his new flying skills, he was still trying to direct his device, this time using more sophisticated propulsion mechanisms, flapping wings and a windmill. On his third flight, on the 7th of January, 1785, he took off with an American from Boston, the physician, scientist and military surgeon who served with the British Army during the American Revolution, Dr. John Jeffries. Setting off from Dover Castle, the wind carried them out over the channel, but nearing the French coast, weighed down by extraneous supplies such as anchors, a useless hand-operated propeller, and silk-covered oars with which they hoped they could row their way through the air, the two balloonists were forced to throw nearly everything out of the balloon. Blanchard even threw his trousers over the side in a desperate but successful attempt to lighten the ship. Those must have been some trousers. One other thing that was dropped from the balloon was a letter that Jeffreys had penned, which is now considered the oldest piece of airmail in existence. John Jeffreys was also a renowned weather observer, and in the United States his birthday on the 5th of February is celebrated by weather forecasters and storm chasers alike as the National Weather Person's Day. Blanchard's first manned crossing of the Channel by air was conducted only a few days after an attempt by the French inventor Jean-Francois Pilatre de Rosier, who, along with his co-passenger, sorry, a pilot, a French army officer, were killed when their balloon caught fire during an attempted crossing. Rosier used hydrogen combined with hot air as a lifting gas despite knowing the dangers. He apparently had gulped a mouthful of hydrogen which he then blew across an open flame, proving at a stroke, as Bill Bryson amusingly put it, that hydrogen is indeed explosively combustible and that eyebrows are not necessarily a permanent feature of one's face. Rosier and his colleagues are also entered into the history books as the world's first fatal victims of an air accident. Blanchard's flight took only two and a half hours, something to think about the next time your London to Paris flight is delayed. And on landing, he was awarded a substantial pension by Louis XVI. The king also ordered that the balloon and boat that served as a gondola be hung up in the Église Notre-Dame de Calais. I'd be fascinated to know if any of it still hangs there. The first crossing by a heavier-than-air machine was by another Frenchman, Louis Blériot, flying the rather presumptuously named Blériot 11. 
Blériot had caught the aviation bug and built a number of experimental aircraft, many of which he crashed, but luckily he survived without major injury, even when he had an engine failure at a height of around 25 metres over 80 feet. The aircraft had entered a spiralling nosedive, and in desperation, Blériot climbed out of his seat and threw himself towards the tail. By shifting the centre of gravity, he caused the aircraft to partially pull out of the dive, and it came to earth in a more or less horizontal attitude. Not a technique I would recommend to any budding pilots listening. By the time he got to number 11, he had a pretty good design. In fact, quite an advanced one for the time. Having already made some very successful long-distance flights, despite receiving third-degree burns on one of them when the asbestos insulation on the engine's exhaust came loose. The heat burned through his shoe, and despite being in considerable pain, Blériot flew for 30 minutes in this state and was only brought to earth when his engine failed. The injury took over two months to heal. The temptation to cross the channel came from a prize being offered by the Daily Mail. It had recently been doubled from £500 to £1,000, and there were a considerable number of contenders, including Wilbur Wright, for this princely sum. Hubert Latham was the first to try, but the engine of his Antoinette 4 monoplane failed only six miles from his destination, and his entry into the record books was a less than remarkable one for being the first aircraft to ditch at sea. It was early on the morning of July the 25th, 1909, when Blériot woke. He was feeling a bit pessimistic about the weather, but after a good breakfast, his spirits rose enough to make the attempt. His wife embarked on the French destroyer Escopet, which was to escort the flight, and after a quick test flight, Blériot took off from France and set off for England, at a couple of hundred feet over the water. Not having a compass, he was relying on the ship to guide him, but he soon overtook it and was alone over the water and in poor visibility. He wrote, For more than ten minutes I was alone, isolated, lost in the midst of the immense sea, and I did not see anything on the horizon or a single ship. The poor visibility and rain did help a little by keeping his engine cool, and eventually he spied the white cliffs of Dover. Sadly, the gusty conditions made his landing less than perfect, and he damaged his undercarriage and broke his propeller, but he was safely down. The flight had taken a mere 36 minutes and 30 seconds, and earned him 27 pounds and 8 shillings a minute. The flight made Blériot and his impressive moustache an overnight celebrity and brought success to his aircraft manufacturing company. The British, feeling a bit put out that all the success was coming from the other side of the channel, rather belatedly entered the record books with the first double crossing when Charles Rolls, of Rolls-Royce fame, took off on June the 2nd, 1910, in his right flyer, and flew for 95 minutes, making the non-stop flight over to France and back, which included the first eastbound crossing, 
a feat that earned him the Royal Arrow Club's gold medal. Sadly, Rolls was to enter the history books later, at the young age of 32, as the first Briton to be killed in a powered aircraft when the tail of his right flyer broke off during a display he was performing at Bournemouth. By that time, ten others had died in various aircraft accidents around the globe. Out of interest, the Honourable Charles Stuart Rolls only sported a small, well-trimmed moustache. Later, the same year as Rolls' record flight, the first passenger aircraft crossing was made, this time by the American pilot John Moissant in his two-seat Blerio 11. His passengers consisted of Albert Philo, his engineer, and Moissant's tabby cat, Mademoiselle Fifi. Moissant had proclaimed himself the king of aviators, but had very little experience. Indeed, his crossing of the channel was only his sixth flight. Only four months later, he was to die making a preparatory flight in his attempt to win the 1910 Michelin Cup for the longest sustained flight. He was attempting to land near New Orleans when a gust of wind threw him from his aircraft and he fell 25 feet, landing on his head, which was unadorned by a moustache, breaking his neck. It didn't take long for the ladies to catch up when in 1912 Harriet Quimby took off from Dover and, 59 minutes later, landed on a beach about 25 miles from Calais. The press had dubbed her the Dresden China Aviatrix because of her petite stature and fair skin, and being one of the very few lady pilots she earned a considerable amount for professional appearances flying her Blerio. She apparently capitalised on her femininity by wearing trousers tucked into high lace boots accentuated by a plum-coloured satin blouse, necklace and antique bracelet. She drew crowds wherever she competed in cross-country meets and races, until later in 1912 when she was flying William Willard, the organiser of the third annual Boston Aviation Meet. At an altitude of 1,000 feet, the aircraft unexpectedly pitched violently forwards. Both Willard and Quimby were thrown from their seats and fell to their deaths, whilst the pilotless plane glided down and lodged itself in the mud. The First World War brought some less welcome crossings when the first airship, a Zeppelin, made its way over to bomb Britain. But in happier times after the war, some more interesting flights were made. The first autogyro crossed in 1928, flown by the Spanish pilot Juan de la Sierra, first count of La Sierra. Again, a Channel Crossing record holder was to die in an aviation accident, but this time it was more conventional when the count perished in a KLM DC-2 crash. The aircraft hit a house during a takeoff from Croydon Airfield. Neither Harriet Quimby nor the first count of La Sierra had a moustache. The first glider pilot to achieve a successful crossing was Lissant Beardmore, who, despite his name, 
only wore a very short moustache, of the type favoured by a particular German dictator. In his aircraft, named Sandra, and sporting a Union flag and an Automobile Association badge, how the AA were going to help him start his glider, I'm not sure, he was desperate to ensure that a British citizen was the first to achieve this milestone. Apparently, on June the 20th, 1932, an Austrian was going to attempt a double crossing to win a £1,000 Daily Express prize, so Beardmore took off from Limp the day before. He was towed aloft by an Avro 504 to 12,000 feet before being cast off over Folkestone to secure for Britain the honour of the first crossing. Sadly, in his rush to beat the Austrian to the honour of the achievement, Beardmore failed to take a barograph and obtain official observers, so the British Gliding Association never officially recognised the flight. However, in keeping with others who have claimed a Channel Crossing flight record, Lissant Beardmore was to perish in a flying accident at Reading in June of 1936. The first helicopter to fly across this short stretch of water was a German wartime machine captured at the end of the Second World War. The US intended to bring captured aircraft back to the States on board ship, but only had room for one example of the Fock Archgelis FA-223 Drach Dragon, and intended to destroy the others. The RAF objected, and with the aid of the Luftwaffe helicopter test pilot, Helmut Gerstenhauer, plus two observers, they flew the machine from Cherbourg to RAF Bewley in Hampshire, thereby, almost by accident, claiming the record. The channel has been crossed many more times in various flying machines since, including a human-powered aircraft in 1979, an electric aircraft in 1981, free fall in a wingsuit in 2003, by jetpack in 2008, and a flying car in 2017. I'm glad to say that most of the more recent record breakers are still walking amongst us. The state of their upper lips, sadly, remains something of a mystery. If you enjoyed this story, please leave us a review on your podcaster of choice. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.